0: Hello, and welcome to Four Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and today we're discussing a topic many advisors have mixed emotions about compliance. Many advisors, and certainly marketers at advisory firms, have a love hate relationship with compliance, seen as an obstacle or a necessary evil, but also something to be relied upon in case a complaint by a client comes along. For a professional perspective on this misunderstood aspect of advisory, we're speaking with Chris Wynn, CEO and lead consultant of Advisor Assist. A compliance consultant and service provider based near Boston, Massachusetts. Chris founded Advisor Assist in 2006 to provide comprehensive support to elite advisory firms seeking independence and risk managed growth. Chris has over 26 years of industry experience and has served in numerous operations, compliance, and leadership roles. Advisor Assist was established over 1,600 registered investment advisors with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and all 50 state regulators. Chris, welcome to the program. We're glad you could join us today.
1: Thank you, Dave. I appreciate being here.
0: Chris, just for the sake of getting the whole audience on the same page, can you give us a working definition of compliance? Compliance with what? Absolutely. Uh, You know, we
1: define compliance primarily as risk management with regulatory compliance really being one leg of the stool. Uh, and, And to elaborate on that, basically, we look at the overall risk management of the firm as the inherent risks that you have for being in business and compliance is really the you know the regulator's responsibility and that of the chief compliance officer to follow certain approaches and protocols to demonstrate that you're thinking of all the various risk as- risk aspects of the firm
0: I- is compliance really that big a deal for most RIAs? I mean, there are lots of advisors out there with questionable tactics and practices, and they never seem to draw any attention. It's only the most sweeping and broadly fraudulent schemes that ever seem to get noticed, at least in the media.
1: Sure. Well, there's really two questions here. So is compliance really that big of a deal to most advisors? Actually, no. Uh the, the best way for most advisors to deal with compliance is to really integrate it into the overall operations and workflows of the business. So identifying how you service your clients, how you maintain information, how your systems work, and essentially aligning a lot of those business activities with uh, the normal operational flows of your business. Then in addition to that, there's there's obviously regulatory items that must be done. Um, and those are the items that uh, you know are often most thought of from a compliance standpoint. But we really like to make sure that firms are handling both of those. So they're, you know, institutionalizing their processes and and really weaving them into the fiber of their business. And then that covers a majority of the of the compliance and risk management. Then from there, there are specific regulatory requirements, which include reporting, monitoring for various activities, and a lot of other uh, daily, weekly, monthly, and quarterly tasks that need to happen. And for that, they can either be done internally by the chief compliance officer or their team, or you know the support and assistance of an outsourced compliance provider, such as Advisor Assist. The second part of your question, uh, is really who's getting the attention, Uh, you know, like most things in life, the, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Uh, And if you think of the media, you know, they're not going to publish a story to say, you know, that we learned that ABC advisors, uh, you know, was a day late in delivering their form ADV or some, you know, nominal thing. It's uh, (laughs) the only stories that really add value are the fraudulent schemes and, uh, you know, where there's lawsuits, where clients are harmed, where there's SEC or state actions, those tend to be the ones that get noticed by the media. Uh, so that's really the, you know, the, the key approach why you don't hear about all those details.
0: So really, it's still the juicy story that sells papers that they're covering, and it's not really just the incremental day-to-day working type items that that need to be done all the time.
1: Absolutely. And and one thing that they do, um, there are some – the SEC publishes their priority lists annually, and then also uh, NASA, which is the uh, collective uh, representation of all the state regulators – uh, do publish priorities as well as common deficiencies. So the SEC issues risk alerts on a regular and consistent basis and other uh, similar documentation to let them know things that they find problematic uh, to provide you know guidance and color. But generally speaking, the SEC is, you know, they're not a compliance consultant for the firm. They're not going to, to, uh, you know, give them the advice of the things that they should do. They're more telling them the things that they shouldn't do.
0: So there is a list of of things they can be looking for and that they focus on. We're going to come back to that in just a couple of minutes and talk about that. Uh, Since you're a service provider, you talk to a lot of advisors. You work with a broad swath of different size and types. What's the most prevalent sentiment out there towards uh, the government and other regulators amongst uh, RIAs? What are they thinking?
1: Well, of course, nobody wants the SEC or the state to come in and visit their office. Uh, However, there has been a bit of a shift in the way the regulators, by and large, not all of them, not every regulator, not every jurisdiction, uh, is dealing with the advisors. So one of the things that the regulators have done differently is they used to either just show up or give you a very limited amount of time to prepare, and it creates a strain. So the SEC, as an example, shows up you know, with two or three days notice and parks himself in your office. They're unprepared, you're unprepared. And it creates a tense, you know, situation, you know, with high anxiety and, you know, takes significantly longer and truly impedes on the business of the advisor. What they have done uh, in the last couple of years is focus more on risk-based examination and uh, a little bit more preparation so they generally now reach out a little bit earlier, uh, generally two weeks in advance, and they'll have a rolling uh, collection of uh, documents, a document requests that they want to see in advance of them showing up, or in some cases they do a remote exam. But they basically give you enough time to be prepared, but not enough time to go create things you didn't have. And with them being more prepared and the advisor being more prepared, they can really just get to the heart of the matter much quicker, and that has somewhat changed the dynamic. But of course, still, you know, by and large, um, you know, the thought of a, a regulatory exam gives Benny anxiety.
0: So that's what we yeah, absolutely we've heard horror stories over and over again about uh, SEC or even Finra audits. Everybody seems to have one of those stories. Is that just sort of a function of, of nobody likes anybody looking over their shoulder, or are they really? very tough on these things what actually happens in one of these audits what are they looking for
1: well you know the best way of describing it is the examiner generally has a good idea what to expect before they show up but, so by doing their social media searches looking at financial records and the other document requests they generally know you know and the background of the people uh, you know am I is this going to be uh, a simple routine exam where we just want to make sure that the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, or do we have to dig in looking for possible wrongdoing? You know, they generally have a good sense of what's happening before they get there. Uh, the, the other thing that's important to note is many regulators don't have any incentive um, to, and, and notice I said many, not all or most, but many regulators don't have any incentive to find something wrong other than to really make it clear that their presence is there and and they they showed up to do the work. Um, The SEC, for instance, um, awards, uh, you know, bonuses for, for uncovering fraud and other aspects. Um, But if somebody's ADV is just, you know, could use some tightening up the, you know, the examiner isn't going to get a bonus from that. Now contrast that with FINRA and, you know, FINRA is not a government agency. It's a self-regulatory agency that's funded in two ways. One is by its membership fees, and the second is by fines. So FINRA, as an example, has an incentive to go out there and find something that's wrong and to make more of a big deal out of it than it may actually be, because if they don't get the fines, there isn't enough money in the bonus pool. <laughs> wow.
0: Wow. Uh, that's quite a bit to, to swallow for most folks. We talked about how they, they were trying to, um, to reduce the drag on, on and the burden on the RIAs by giving them a little more time to prepare, not enough time to manufacture anything. How much does being compliant add to the expense side of the ledger? How, how much is it a drag on profitability? If you, couldn't, if you didn't need to be compliant, how much extra are you really taking home? Well, you know, it's it's like anything else in life. It's you know, being
1: prepared is cheaper than reactionary. Uh, so if you think back to what I said moments ago, uh, the the firms that truly weave in risk management functions and activities into the day to day of their business. So taking an extra 30 seconds to make sure that a record in your CRM is tight, when you're reconciling, you know, client accounts, you know, having proper documentation, having the right reports to not only look at the portfolio concentration, but other risk factors of an investment por- portfolio, just a few examples. you know, Baking that in doesn't really add a lot of incremental cost, but the cost of coming in and fixing things after the, after the fact can get more expensive. Uh, the, the true cost of compliance really depends on the, the, the business activities of the firm, the size and growth trajectory of the firm and whether they're using, you know, external resources or not. So as you can imagine of course, having a dedicated chief compliance officer is going to cost firms, you know, six figures or more where they where if they have the bandwidth and availability in someone who is uh, meets the SEC's definition of an accountable and knowledgeable person inside the firm you can have a what we call a duly hatted person that might be an advisory person or have another role augmented by an external compliance partner to help you really manage what we call that year in compliance. So that could really, you know, be a significant difference in 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 price on that depending on the level of proactivity whether there's someone that can truly uh, Uh, contribute to that role internally and then the quality of the external provider.
0: Sounds like anything else. There's always time to do it over, but there's never time to do it right. Um, uh, Tell me a little bit about the, the agencies themselves. We talked a little bit about them publishing lists and giving people a little more time. Have they actually pumped up their efforts a little bit in light of recent famous cases like Bernie Madoff or Kevin Merrill? I mean, have those really given them incentive to go out and find the big bad guys. You know,
1: it it does vary by regulator and by region of the country, but but the answer is kind of, is a little bit yes of yes. Um, so there's more and more risks that face us all every single day. So, you know, 10 years ago nobody was, you know, focused on cybersecurity. Today, this is your biggest risk as any business, but especially a financial based business. So, obviously the regulators are having to react to that. Train themselves, implement approaches, rules, and other components to to deal with that. They also have other factors such as you know technology changing the way information is is moving back and forth, which not only affects cyber but business continuity, privacy, all of these other aspects. So everybody's very busy. Um, in terms, in each each, I would say virtually every agency has stepped up their efforts across the board. Um, but it is—it doesn't necessarily mean that they've stepped up their efforts looking to try to jam people up. But they obviously have a keen eye to make sure that you know their mandate is investor protection. So, with the you know with the bad guys always being one step ahead of the good guys here, they they need to obviously implement uh, different audit and other protocols to make sure that they're able to identify you know when things are fraudulent.
0: Now, if they do find something, I mean, what's really the worst that can happen? Do these enforcement have any teeth, really? I mean, what's how bad can it get?
1: Oh, I mean, absolutely. It really depends on the nature of this. If, you know, it, when regulators find things, and let me actually define, let's say in the RAA side for, for this portion of it here, as I did mention, the, you know, FINRA generally has some incentives to find wrongdoing on the RAA side in the typical regulator, they're looking for a couple things. They're they're looking for do you have appropriate compliance controls in place? Do you take it seriously? Do you test it? Do you continuously improve? So it's not just about getting an A-scorecard here. It's 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 essentially continuous improvement and having the wherewithal to find and fix problems. And that's most important. So think of it from the perspective of a regulator coming in. And the compliance officer just asserting that everything's perfect. Well, that examiner is now has to prove that to be an actual fact, or someone's going to question whether they look deep enough. So it's not that I'm saying, you know, leave some breadcrumbs to some small things that you did wrong, but it's okay that if you have minor, you know, deficiencies that you found internally addressed appropriately and created your own corrective action, that's healthy. And the regulators like to see that because it shows that you care. It shows that you're paying attention. Um, But to get into the teeth of actual enforcement, you know, when something gets to the level of enforcement, generally someone's either harmed or there's recidivist behavior. So they've come out, they've said, this is a problem. We need you to fix it. Please assert to us how you're going to fix it and when you're going to fix it. And at some point we're going to be back and we're going to check. So when they come back and find out that, you know, they didn't actually fix it and you didn't take their, their, you know, warning seriously, those things also lead to enforcement. But most of them that you see in the media and other places are really based around um, fraud, deception, uh, client harm, uh, things of that nature and, so in those, there actually really is teeth to it. Uh, it can range from uh, disclosures that the firm has to put at the firm level and each advisory person to fines, to even you know, people being barred from the industry on either a temporary or long-term basis. So they really do, they do have teeth. Um, and uh, so firms can be put out of business.
0: That sounds a whole lot less scary than it used to, but uh, I think there's still some concern out there. We're going to take a couple of minute break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, marketing efforts and what things can be focused on there and how we can productively uh, stay one step ahead of the compliance officer and make sure we're doing things right. We'll be right back.
2: Are you an RIA or solo financial advisor looking to grow and scale your practice but feel like you need some help? Feel like there are lots of growth options and choices out there, but don't have time to research them and don't want to make an expensive mistake? Want to spend more time finding and helping clients instead of time-consuming investment research, compliance checks, or transactional work? If you answered yes to any of these, Pinnacle Advisor Solutions has the answers you need. With a wide range of outsource options and top-rated professional investment management and financial planning support, Pinnacle has a solution that fits your needs budget, and circumstances to help you scale up, grow your practice, or put a succession plan in place. Call to get more information or set up an appointment with a senior representative at 201-919-4838.
0: Okay, we're back with Chris Wynn of Advisor Assist. Um, We've talked today mostly about... um, regulatory things as they affect the operation of the business and and keeping compliant. How much should smaller advisors be paying attention in terms of compliance to their marketing efforts? Most of them are in some sort of an effort to grow and and are starting to put out more things in either email or social media or even television commercials for some of the bigger ones. Um, How much is that a concern versus uh, the operation and and the client interaction stuff? Because that's not really harmful, is it? It's just an ad.
1: Sure. Well, you know, advisors of all sizes should t- pay very close attention to the marketing efforts. And as I mentioned before, you know, each activity of the advisor, you need to look at how do we, you know, a- achieve the best ROI of our spend and effort and how do we do things in the most compliant and risk managed approach. So some firms have taken the approach that they want to stay away from things like advertising and social media. Uh, but of course, that's to their own detriment. It makes it really hard to grow if you don't market your services. So we're very uh, strong believers in uh, you know it's that you shouldn't the, the answer shouldn't be no to any of these things. It should be how do we do it the right way and how do we prepare to ensure that we don't inadvertently make mistakes with respect to compliance rules. You know, it, it take specifically relating to the marketing efforts. So, with social media, the ability for blogging, technology, all of these, you know, components coming together, are really enabling the smaller advisor to compete with the the larger firms. So, the the they don't the larger firms don't necessarily have a, a leg up in terms of overall marketing and positioning. The biggest challenge for most smaller firms is actually finding the time to do it. But once that you know hurdle is covered the most important part there is actually creating a game plan and a strong uh, basic set of protocols for your marketing and advertising so that you don't have any items that are missed under the RIA framework marketing and advertising is actually surprisingly simple there's really three governing principles that the advisors act and comparable state rules have and that said, any marketing and advertisement needs to be truthful, it needs to be accurate, and it cannot omit any material facts. And it sounds very simple, uh, but when you start to apply that across the board to everything, think of it from the perspective of, would somebody reading this have all the information they would reasonably need to not have any misunderstanding or confusion based on what you said? That gets you pretty far. Uh, then, Disclosure if you compare and contrast the disclosure requirements for a registered investment advisor to a FINRA-based firm, the disclosure is much lighter. And it's not because there's less regulation. It's mostly because the, the advisor is a fiduciary and on the same side of the table as the, as the client. So there's not a product sale generally. That's included in anything here. It is articulating the value of the services that they provide, and is not getting into those components of the cost of a product, the conflicts of interest of a product, because they're not selling a product. So that's that's what is making the uh, making it a lot easier for some of these smaller firms to com- to compete because they don't have as onerous of a process of pre-clearing and getting uh, a marketing and advertising piece through compliance because there is just less uh, less that's being conveyed.
0: So tech levels the playing field for everybody. They can get the word out in efficient fashion because technology will help where before you just needed money. Uh, but the fact that they're now on the side of the client means there's a lot less sort of obfuscation and trickery going on. They really have to act in their best interest and and Bringing them along for the ride is definitely in their best interest, so there's less that needs to be monitored. But, uh, specifically sticking with the marketing for a minute, you, what types of things are regulators looking for recently, and what are they focused on from RIAs in terms of marketing, and, and what are they finding?
1: Well, you know, of course, they're looking for promissory statements or uh, things where the uh, you know websites and other communications where what they're marketing doesn't align with what their uh, regulatory disclosures are. So their form ADV or the background of their people. Uh, some smaller firms want to look larger, so they are looking for you know things such as are you know are the assets under management or the number of clients or the target market in alignment with what they what the reality is for their firm. They're looking for. Uh, strategic advisors or others that are being named on the firm and whether they're truly, you know, are they truly involved or is is this individual have a picture and a bio on the website and they have coffee once a year and they're putting them down as a chief investment officer. So they're looking for, you know, that truthful, accurate aspect of it predominantly. Uh, but then the other aspect is really the fundamentals. It's, do you keep and maintain all your books and records? Do we have proper disclosure? Do we have the right controls in place to make sure that the marketing and advertising gets reviewed before it goes out? Or if it's on a post-review basis, that the uh, that it's consistent and you know all the protocols are being followed.
0: So a good process and a good plan uh, can save you lots of trouble and make sure that uh, you're getting the right things included at the beginning so they just carry them out. Um, We talked mostly, unfortunately, this morning about uh, a lot of the negatives for compliance in terms of what you should be watching for and fees and fines and that kind of thing. Uh, Let's try and take a walk on the positive side a little bit. Uh, What productive steps can a smaller RIA take to make sure they stay out of trouble? What's, What's the big thing they can do to sort of get themselves on the right track and stay there?
1: Sure. Well, the you know the most important thing is to have a business plan around your marketing and advertising, um, you know, if you're focusing on that. But if we take the broader picture of compliance as a whole, uh, the you know the best way is having a program that r- really has continuous focus and improvement. Uh, so a rotational approach where you're looking at different aspects of the firm on a regular and continuous basis as opposed to, you know, once a year doing a, you know, uh, attempting a thorough review. Because what happens is you have, you know, the, you know, the 11 months of the year where something could be wrong and you continue to, uh, to, you know, enhance or, you know, continue with a mistake or- you propagate it, exactly, like repeating it. <laughs> exactly, repeat that throughout the year. And of course, um, you know, it's like going to the doctor, you know, do, do you exercise every day and eat healthy throughout the year, or do you, you know, clean yourself up and, uh, you know, don't, you know, eat or drink anything bad for you for two or three days before the doctor's visit and then, you know, hope that you're in good shape. It's it, It's- <laughs>
0: It doesn't seem like that would be a good approach. Sure. And,
1: and, you know, and and when we work with advisors, you know, certainly we have the ability to do things like mock exams and other assessments that are a point in time. And we, of course, do that as an onboarding for a lot of our clients. But what we find is the most effective firms are the ones that have a regular and consistent approach towards compliance. And we help them map out uh, what I used that term earlier, the year in compliance, We try to map out the things that they should do throughout each year at, you know, deliberate times so that the most efficient for the advisor when they're actually doing an an activity. So, for instance, if you uh, bill your clients quarterly, uh, the most effective time to go test your fee billing is when you're working on your fee billing as opposed to you know separately doing it in an off month when you're focused on other things. So we try to help create that ROI and that alignment on compliance so that advisors can be proactive with the limited time and resources that they have.
0: I, I can't imagine anybody not wanting to do that. It seems so sensible. Now we, we likened compliance a moment ago to going to the doctor, which I think was a great metaphor. Um, is there There are good doctors and bad doctors. Is there a difference in in the strictness or the the adherence to regulation between an outsourced solution like you guys and maybe the in-house officer who may have some stake in looking the other way on some things?
1: Well, you know, the the best way of describing it, it it certainly depends on the consulting firm and partner. The way we look at it is we get very involved in the how and the why. So we're here, you know, while compliance is the anchor delivery that we have, we get very involved in the strategy and the operations of the business with our advisors as well. And we want to know, you know, what their goals are, how they're trying to build the firm the tools and technologies they use and the, the people and the flow of information. So, you know, our, our discussions are probably a little skewed towards the, you know, towards how do we effectively do what you need to, what you're trying to accomplish in the most compliant manner instead of um, often, you know, it's much easier to just say no right? It's something you can't do, you shouldn't do. Here's 10 reasons why you shouldn't do it instead of offering the reasons why, if you do it, here's how you have to do it the right way. Uh, So that is how we approach it. I think the difference between an in-house officer and having external compliance, really the delta might not be so much looking the other way, but actually knowing where the line is and, and being able to look across many firms and see, you know, the outcome and where it's causing issues and where it's not, and how to vo- avoid those issues. So for you know, advisor assist working with hundreds of, of advisory firms, we go through countless SEC and state exams each year. So we see the you know the practical aspects of these in action and here are the things that you want to avoid or here are the issues. That the regulators have with certain approaches, so it becomes more practical and actionable. Whereas an in-house officer might only see that that the regulator, you know, every two, three, five, ten years. So it's upon them to try to stay, you know, up to speed with all of the regulatory change and outcome. But often you don't have the the vantage point. So it, it's it's not that they can't get that information from industry trade groups and. you know, and other approaches, but uh, it's, you know, it does change the perspective a little.
0: So I was going to say the biggest difference really is, is uh, access and and perspective. If you're not working with this stuff all the time, there's a lack of familiarity with, with what can be done and what can be done. We liken our compliance officer to the the queen of no, she just, (laughs) it's much easier to say no than it is to, to find a solution, but she's come around to the fact that we're going to keep coming back. We're not going anywhere here in the marketing department and she's going to have to help us get through this. <laughs> so, uh, it's It's working well together, actually. We're, we have a good time. And, and, um, and similarly, as an
1: outsourced compliance provider, if we were just uh, you know locked in a room creating ADVs and compliance manuals, it'd be a very mundane job. So getting to understand the how and the why and helping firms to effectively get to you know, what is the best way of accomplishing the business goal uh, that's what makes it interesting for us here as well.
0: I, it's gotta be fascinating just talking about all these different advisors and what kind of trouble they've gotten into. And you must sit around the table at the end of the day and just share stories that are fantastic. Is there a, a, a tale you could share with my audience that, that sort of has an interesting aspect to it, or some sort of a really nice payoff, either for the client or for the, uh, investigator? Well,
1: sure. You know, uh, of course, um, I guess the best way of describing it is we're often asked the question, you know, how many of your firms get fined or have major regulatory issues, and my response is, well, you know, it's a it's a skewed population. So first of all, if someone is working with us, they already take compliance seriously. They have the willingness to pay for it. They have the openness to hear advice and guidance and want, want to work collaboratively to make things better. So you can't really look at that population comparable to the, the rest of the, the industry because the firm already cares. So that's like the foundation is already built with, with having firms that care about that as a, as a baseline. Uh, but from there, of course, there are certain things that happen all the time. I'm going to share cybersecurity as being one of the biggest risks of an advisor. And uh, we did have a firm a couple of years ago that, that this ties into really every aspect of the business and, uh, and has a lot of financial impact, of course. So we had an advisor um, where an operations person um, reacted to a hacked email account requesting a money movement and did not take the proper internal protocols of contacting the client verbally, did not uh, internally bring in the relationship managers or the CCO or management and essentially prepared the paperwork, emailed it back to the fraudulent account or hacked account, I should say, and effectively moved uh, $90,000. It was $80,000 to the, um, to uh, end up being China, so they didn't even check the receiving bank, the routing number for the receiving bank. Um, so poof, eighty thousand dollars is gone. The following morning, still no, nothing was logged into the CRM system. The relationship manager wasn't contacted. The relationship manager didn't have a report that's automatically generated on you know money movements outside of the client accounts or changes. So no one knew anything about it. Day two, the fraudster said, this is the easiest money I've ever made. Let's see how they react to $450,000. <laughs> we came
0: back to the well.
1: <laughs> so less than 18 hours later, came back for asking for $450,000, uh, sent the same information over, and the operations person happened to be uh, happened to be off at a doctor or dentist appointment. And flip the email over to another over to another individual with the simple instructions, please take care of this. So of course the person took care of this and followed the exact same pattern as they did yesterday. Didn't call the client, didn't follow through, didn't check receiving banks, didn't look at the client account, talk to anybody, didn't process that. 450000 is a lot of money and we might really want to think this through. Um, And, you know, poof, now goes another $450,000. It didn't occur to them until day three when the fraudster said, well, geez, I might as well try it a third time. What do I have to lose? Um, And then it occurred to the individual that they might have made a mistake. Now, the problem with this, uh, of course, is that the there's really even if you have cyber insurance no insurance company is going to pay for something where there's just pure negligence and there was literally a dozen ways that this could have been caught on the front end so the regulators did not pay and i mean they, the the uh, insurance company did not pay and the owners of the firm essentially had 48 hours to come up with $530,000 which had to be funded back to the client's account with interest and then you know, basically implement their other cyber risk controls, which resulted in uh, cyber firms, risk uh, lawyers, and other aspects. So the total cost of this was, you know, much, much more than the $530,000. Wow.
0: I asked for a scary story and boy, I
1: got one. (laughs) Yes. And, and, you know, I always tell our advisors, please don't give me a better story. Uh, I don't want one better than this. Uh, And- Uh it so it really leaves us with you know truly this is one of the biggest risks um, you can't just look at um, well I'll just do it this one time because I'm busy or I know mr. Smith in and out so I don't need to call mr. Smith you know your first job as an advisor is to protect everybody's wealth you know it doesn't do any good to uh, it doesn't do any good to uh, you know to have great investment performance and really good advice if you lose all of everybody's assets in the process through an administrative shortcoming. So it's quite frankly, I I hope we never come up with a better story.
0: (laughs) I do too. My goodness. Uh, Strong processes have to be followed in order for them to be effective. Um, We're we're about at the end of our time stream here. To sum up, what should small advisors really be focusing on? when it comes to compliance? What's one thing they can really make sure they're they're doing correctly that would help them the most? Well,
1: you know, I always get asked this question and my first answer is, is just get started. So it's often one of those things that, you know, clients will always come first and they should, uh, but compliance is one of those things that, you know, I'm going to work on it next Friday. Well, that Friday just never comes. So I think the most important thing for advisors to do is to just get started jump in and start doing testing, start to look at the various reports and tools they have, determine whether they're leveraging their technology appropriately, and do they have uh, appropriate exception-based reports to be able to help them find things that might not be perfect. So it could be as basic as clients that they haven't talked to in X number of months, it could be portfolios with high cash or low cash or high turnover or low turnover. Uh, it could be other tolerance items, but it, it, and it could be making sure that, you know, cybersecurity and, you know, all the systems have multi-factor authentication. So I know you asked me for one thing and I gave you 20, but really the the one thing is jump in and get started. If you're waiting for perfection, you're never going to get there. So the best way to, to, to get your firm in a safer place where you sleep better at night is just start chipping away at it.
0: So it's a process, and the one thing you can really remember is just to get started doing it. Chris, thank you so much for all those tips and insights. We really enjoyed having you. Um, We've been speaking with Chris Wynn of Advisor Assist, a compliance outsource firm, about how small advisors can make their firms compliant more easily and effectively. If you have questions about compliance or anything involving your advisory practice, be sure to drop us a line at 4 at PinnacleAdvisory.com. I'm your host, Dave Polis, and you've been listening to 4 Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. Until next time, thanks for listening.
2: You're listening to 4 Advisors, the podcast for and about financial advisors. This program is for educational purposes only and the opinions expressed here by guests, do not necessarily fully or accurately reflect the legal intent or nature of Pinnacle Advisor Solutions, Pinnacle Advisory Group, or its senior management. This program is not intended to give legal, investment, or financial planning advice, and opinions and statements made in this podcast should not be relied on as such.